Hello and welcome to episode 41 of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. In September of 2016, I attended a rally in Lansing, Michigan that was put together to draw attention for the need of better support of special education in Michigan public schools. The rally brought representatives from both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, our state's lieutenant governor, and members of the Michigan Board of Education together. Now, in the coming months, I'm going to feature interviews with some of the people who spoke at that rally, including our guest for this episode, Dr. John McCaskill. Now, Dr. McCaskill is not a politician. He is, in fact, a clinical psychologist whose practice is in the Detroit area. Dr. McCaskill gave a speech on his research and treatment methods for learning disabilities for kids and adults. And his speech, to put it mildly, was astonishing. And the reaction from the crowd gathered was incredible. He had ideas and facts that shattered many myths and long-held beliefs about learning disabilities and what special education should be doing to help kids with these problems. Now, after the rally, I invited Dr. McCaskill to do an interview for Special Parents Confidential, and I was once again amazed because when we did this interview, Dr. McCaskill spoke with me for nearly two and a half hours. The interview, in fact, was so long that I can't even post it in its entirety because the file size is too large for my website hosting service. So I've had to split the interview up into two parts to make it possible for you to listen to it. And you will definitely want to hear everything, because what you're about to hear is nothing short of a master class in understanding the nature of learning disabilities. Now, in this episode, for the first part of the interview, I talked to Dr. McCaskill about some of the misconceptions about learning disabilities and getting the right kinds of therapy what ADHD is and what it is not, and how anxiety and depression are far greater factors in trying to help kids with learning disabilities than previously thought. But first I asked Dr. McCaskill to talk about his background and how he became interested in clinical therapy for families and individuals with special needs and learning disabilities. Well, it was um, a little bit serendipitous. I, I was always interested in understanding how and why people do what they do. Um, and just to give a little bit of a backdrop to that, um, I originally, when I went to college, started with the idea of being an engineer. Um, was always very scientifically oriented, um, mathematically minded, really into the scientific method of problem solving. Um, and so I did the first two years of college in the engineering curriculum before I realized that even though I loved that mode of thinking, um, working with machines, mechanical kinds of things, wasn't really my passion. Um, and I really enjoyed working with people. So I shifted gears and ended up in the field of clinical psychology um, where I could still apply the same methods of inquiry to help people understand what was causing disruptions and difficulties in their lives, um, and then what, what would work differently to make things improve for them. Um, so went to school to earn my uh, doctorate in clinical psychology. Along the way, um, became very, very interested in working with children, um, just because that's where a lot of the troubles seem to start for whatever reason, whether it's a genetic thing or whether it was born out of circumstances, um, and figured, you know, the earlier we can pin down what's going on and sort of redirect the course of action, uh, the more frustrations and difficulties we can prevent, um, or at least minimize, and hopefully remove a lot of the long-term problems that we're developing when, when things just morphed over a course of years and years and years. And 
in the course of getting training with children, um, ended up getting some really, really good um, experiences and training in the field of pediatric neuropsychology, um, just really focusing more on the brain as the source of really most of what happens in our lives, um, the source of our strengths as well as our weaknesses in terms of how we think about things, solve problems, react to the environment, um, and go about just doing what we have to do in life, getting results, performing on the job, performing at school, in relationships, etc. cetera. Um, many, if, if not all, of those things can be traced back to brain-based issues. And after graduate school and going off to do my residency and then ending up in the, in the, the clinical world, um, one of the other things that became obvious to me was that, you know, part of the job, the main part of the job is certainly figuring out what is driving the source of people's difficulties and what's going to be more helpful to them going forward. But then when you're working with kids, a huge, huge um, part of their lives is school. And that's where a lot of the difficulties were occurring, or at least being sort of stirred up uh, just by the demands of learning, performing, and continuing to advance the curriculum. Um, nothing against the schools on that point. That's, that's what life is all about. But kids that have brain-based glitches in terms of how they process information, how they organize and store information in their memory, how they access and then uh, use information um, pertaining to memory functions as well as executive control skills. Um, school was where a lot of the difficulties were happening, and that's where a lot of the stress was related to, and then there's associated social difficulties that go along with that. And it became obvious to me that I really needed to focus on not only helping to understand what was causing those problems, but then how to collaborate as much as possible with school systems and build a relationship with families and schools um, to figure out what kind of things are going to be helpful to address the child's needs in the classroom setting um, with class assignments, with discussions, with testing, with homework, et cetera, and building just a very coordinated network of support and intervention services across the home and school settings. And in the course of trying to do that, found out that, yes, there's clearly um, special education laws and there's um, disability slash civil rights laws um, that govern the services that are available through schools or potentially available through schools to help address these kinds of difficulties. Um, and there's different types of services rooted in different types of laws, uh, depending on what the issues are and what the needs are. Um, and sometimes all those things were very readily offered uh, to people, or at least the information about those things was readily offered to people, sometimes not. And I found out that you know, it's, it's a very complicated um, world, understanding all those laws, rules, procedures, um, and the services that are governed by them. And a lot of times the folks I was dealing with in the schools um, at, at the school level, meaning teachers, guidance counselors, et cetera, um, didn't fully understand all those things either. And, you know, understandably, it's just, it, it's a full-time job understanding that stuff. Um, but I found out that a lot of times, just because of misinformation 
or lack of information. Um, information either was being provided to families that was wrong or partially wrong or sometimes not provided at all. And kids sometimes were not getting services that really they were entitled to um, that would be helpful to them to prevent the difficulties and help them be more successful. So I just at one point decided I needed to immerse myself in that world to learn more about the laws and the school services. And so I would know more about what options were and were not available for what kinds of issues and the specific procedures for accessing and using those services. Um, So at one point, way back when I had a lot more time on my hands, um, coming out of a school meeting where a kid that really had a lot of very complicated needs um, but was getting denied services um, based on some rationale, which kind of goes beyond our point right now, um, it was very frustrating when the school said that there was nothing they could do. And uh, I remember driving home that afternoon and essentially downloaded uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. This is back in, I don't know, the year 2000, 2001, and spent the weekend reading them cover to cover and just learning more about exactly what was and was not there and was able to go back the next week now armed with better information um, and was able to secure more appropriate services for the kid that were available the whole time, just people didn't know. And if you didn't know what to ask, you couldn't get there. So adding that educational advocacy and consultation piece um, to our approach um, has been a mainstay of our practice ever since then. Um, So going back to your original question of what got me interested, it it was a series of events all based in just trying to help understand, help people understand what was causing the difficulties and the frustration in their lives and then what would be more effective. Um, because the other thing I learned through all this that sort of was related to this, you know, what's been my life's passion is just realizing more and more and more, the more people I work with, I mean, I knew this, but it's just, it's just been borne out time and time again. Um, the <clears throat> Even though it's easy to kind of see a kid struggling, see a kid making the same mistakes over and over again, see a kid performing inconsistently, sometimes on, sometimes off, it's easy to take those examples and conclude that, oh, the kid could do it if they wanted to, they're just not trying hard enough, they're not motivated, they're lazy, whatever the words are. And 99.9% of the time, that's just not true. Um, Kids are, are hardwired to want to succeed. Their brains are hardwired to want to Um, master things, to achieve, to learn, to grow, to be competent, to feel competent, to be seen as competent, to be accepted by their peers, or at least respected, um, and and, and to please people. That's just, just, it makes logical sense. It makes no logical sense to suggest that somebody would do something on purpose that would make their life more difficult and annoy people, which is essentially causing more stress for themselves. they're just doing the best they can with what they have and with what they know. And ultimately, what was causing the difficulties was just a mismatch or a lack of synchrony between their particular style of learning and performing and the methods or the approaches that were being um, taught or suggested to them, um, which might work for 80% of the population, but doesn't work for everybody. And it was just a matter of just retooling people's thinking about what's going to work best for this kid and um, helping them see why and helping them see how 
you know, we're not asking the kid to not perform. We're not um, alleviating them of the responsibility of learning and, and producing results. It's just all about retooling our methods for how they get results and helping them to understand how that works and, and understand more about what their strengths and weaknesses are and, and what approaches and what tools work best for them in order to meet those very normal needs that they were driving for in the first place. Um, so that, just sort of seeing that in action time and time and time again, just further fueled my passion for just really getting in and helping people understand this stuff. Because um, most of the time, in my experience, um, no matter how horrific the set of circumstances might seem when someone first comes into the office, no matter how extreme the frustrations are, no matter how extreme the acting out behaviors are, uh, most of the time they are not indicative of more serious emotional disturbance or more serious um, psychopathology. Um, it's just what we're seeing is usually the cumulative result of years' worth of difficulties and frustrations um, and the kids feeling like no matter what they do, nothing works. They keep trying, nothing works, and people keep getting mad at them. And their frustrations are just born out of the sort of, I guess, conflict between those normal desires to succeed versus the fact that there's glitches in their brain that are disrupting their efforts to do that. Um, and they just don't understand that that's happening in the first place, much less why and what to do about it. So it's all about helping everybody just sort of get on point with those very fundamental ideas. Um, and then you start to see kids actually succeeding. The same drives and motivations are there, but now they're using the right methods and the right tools, and things are working better, and you start to see a lot of those emotional and behavioral symptoms go away. And that's rewarding. It's just to see that, wow, it's just a matter of helping this normal kid find the right approach, and then things start working better. Um, that's, at the end of the day, um, why I do the job. But it's all the result of that initial application of the scientific method, just trying to pin things down, solve the problem real systematically, looking at all the variables um, relevant to the situation. Right. I think it's, uh, I think it's fascinating that your uh, background is starting off in engineering and doing research like that is, has really kind of helped you in uh, researching what's going on with people. And uh, like you said, we, you know, you took the entire weekend to read the IDEA Act and everything else. Uh, you know, you're, you're taking things much further than uh, many other professionals in, uh, in uh, the services uh will often go, and I, I think that's amazing. Yeah, it's just, it just I, remember, I remember very early in my career, um, just, pers- you know, because this is how we're all trained in grad school, you know, we think, okay, we, we have these, you know, this specific set of knowledge and this specific set of um, assessment methodologies that we're trained in and this way of thinking about things, and we come out of grad school thinking, you know, I'm going to bring my expert opinion and, and my skill set into the situation and sort of help figure out what's going on, and then I'll tell people, here's what the issue is, and here's what needs to be done, and they'll be all so grateful that they'll go, thank you very much, and everything will just start happening. And it's wonderful when that really does happen that way, but quite often that's not true. Um, There's lots of reasons why things don't naturally kind of fall into place, Um, most of which have very little to do with the kid. A lot of it, you know, there's other agendas at play too, you know, budgets, people's perceptions, um, 
assumptions that people make about why things are happening, um, different ideas about how these things work and how things should be. There's lots of agendas that come into play. Um, so if we're actually going to do the job that we're sitting out to do in the first place, we can't just stop at the you know, end of the discovery process, as it were. Um, we have to take it to the next level and go, now that we know what's going on, let's now solve the problem about how to operationalize this, right. how to put it into play, and let's you know, navigate all of the relationships and all the different agendas that are involved um, and help everybody get to the same point in the end. Um, ideally, I want everyone to understand um, there's logic underlying this, and there's a real logical rationale for why we're doing what we're doing, and want them to see that it's just a matter of helping the kid use the tools appropriately. We're not saying you don't have to produce results. You do. Um, and it's usually not a real radical thing um, to intervene with once our brains are on point with understanding why things are happening the way they are. Um, but it's getting people to that, I guess, mental retooling, you know, getting that process done. That's really where the gist of the work is. Right, right. That's that's just wonderful. Now, I know that um, you talk about not just the child-specific problems, but also the family and their dynamics and all that. And, of course, people, when they start to think about, you know, therapy or analysis or things like that, there are a lot of misconceptions out there. And people can sometimes uh, come up with uh, little uh, roadblocks based on completely incorrect information. What are some of the biggest misconceptions that people have about therapy and counseling for families and also for kids with special needs? And uh, what can people do to overcome that? Well, I think probably the biggest misconception is that... um Number one, it's only for quote-unquote crazy people, and we'll come back to that point because I think it kind of begs the question of, well, what is crazy in the first place? Mm -hmm. um, number two, um, there's also the – there's still a lot of misunderstanding about just exactly what um, clinical psychologists and neuropsychologists in particular – there's a lot of misconception about what we do. Um, a lot of times people think that, well, we really just um, – deal with emotional and behavioral problems um, and don't realize what we realize, which is that the very you know, fundamental basis for those emotional and behavioral symptoms, um, they're not the issues in and of themselves, they're symptoms of brain-based glitches in terms of how we're accessing and using our skills and how successful or not um, we are in doing that and how much stress and frustration that's causing us. Um, a lot of people just don't realize that. Um, and so part of the issue is just when we first meet with people for the consultation, helping them to understand that there's a bigger picture involved here um, and also helping people appreciate that no matter how old the kid is, they could be 5, 15, 25, you know, as a young adult, um, whenever we sit down with someone for a consultation, um, we're coming into a, a game that's already in progress, as it were, um, whether, I, you know, we're coming in and the first quarter, second quarter, or after halftime, um, there's things that have happened up to that point in time that have led to the picture that we're seeing now. And part of our job is understanding the developmental history, which provides the context for understanding what these symptoms might actually mean in the first place, um, whether they're genetically based, like brain-based glitches, or whether they're born out of social events that have happened before this, you know, before we're meeting them, usually it's some combination of both. 
And in the vast majority of cases that I see, which involve kids with learning differences or ADHD, things like that, um, there's a genetic basis to it that's been interacting with social and educational and other environmental experiences to produce the symptoms that we're seeing. Um, so it's helping people kind of understand that, number one, there's, there's a really logical basis for this, and it's not, it's not all just made up. It's not all um, just, quote-unquote, in somebody's head, as it were. Um, yeah, I know the brain is in the head, but when people say it's all in your head, that just means, you know, you're making it up, you're misperceiving things, you're misunderstanding things. And sometimes that's true, but not usually. Um, and getting back to the idea of, you know, what is crazy in the first place, um, there's a very, very small, small percentage of people that have very serious um, sensory and perceptual disturbances um, that produce symptoms like hallucinations, delusions, things that would be more psychotic in nature. Um, and yes, those things do exist, but that is a small minority of the population, and that's not generally what we're dealing with when we're dealing with kids, um, sometimes, but not usually. Um, so normally, when someone comes to us for consultation or even comes in thinking that they need therapy, and sometimes they do, but a lot of times there's a bigger picture, and we help them to realize that therapy might actually be helpful, but first let's understand more fully what's going on. Um, and I guess the main idea that I try to get across to folks, however we do it, is that what's really the source of the symptoms that we're seeking help for, whether it's behavioral acting out, whether it's anxiety, whether it's depression, some type of social difficulties, um, typically those are chronic stress symptoms born out of recurrent frustrations that are the result of these brain-based glitches that are disrupting the kids' efforts to just pursue those normal drives to succeed, to learn, to please, to be respected, to, be, to feel competent, etc. Um, and the bigger the disparity between what's being asked of the kid and what most of their peers are doing versus what the kid is actually able to perform, um, the bigger the disparity, the greater the, the stress and the greater the frustrations. So trying to help people understand that the symptoms that we're trying to understand um, really reflect interactions between um, the kid's baseline intelligence levels, their temperament in terms of how their body's hardwired to um, process sensory and emotional information and to respond emotionally to situations, um, their educational history, their family um, resources um, and experiences, social activities that have occurred, um, as well as just at, at, a, at a baseline level, the fundamental severity of any genetic brain-based glitches that the kid was born with. Um, all those things interact with the kids, the demands that are being placed on the kid um, at school or by life in general um, to produce the difficulties and thus the stress and frustrations um, and the symptoms that we're trying to understand. The bigger the difference between what the kid needs to do versus what they're able to do, again, produces the severity of the symptoms. So one of the things that you know, I, I will oftentimes tell people at the end of these discussions um, is that you know, the fact that the kid is getting frustrated, the fact that they're experiencing stress, 
however it's being acted out, whether it's through anxiety, depression, oppositionality, argumentativeness, refusing to do things, shutting down, emotional outbursts, whatever the, the case is. The fact that they're feeling frustration like that tells me two things. One, it is a sign of how big the disparity is between what they're able to accomplish given their current skill set and given their current knowledge about how to use it versus what they're trying to do and the methods that they're using to try and accomplish whatever demands are being placed on them. So that's one point. But the other point is the fact that the kid's frustrated like that tells me if, if anybody was thinking that um, there was a motivational problem, that the kid was lazy, didn't care, didn't want to, um, the fact they're getting frustrated is one big, huge piece of evidence that says that that's not true. Because if they really were not motivated, they really didn't care, they wouldn't react. They would just be kind of nonplussed about the whole situation. So you wouldn't be getting these frustration symptoms. The frustration says, I do care. I do want it to be done. I do want to do well. Um, but I can't, and I'm sick of feeling this way, and I'm tired of beating my head against the wall because nothing I do is working, or it'll work for a little bit, but I can't keep it going, or it's so mentally draining to try and do this, um, but yet I'm not finished. I have more to do, um, and it never ends. It seems like it never ends. That's where the frustration is coming from. So frankly, that's a good sign. It says the kid has a pulse, and that's something that we, we can work with. That's a that's quite a different uh, approach than when I was uh, a kid, and uh, and still a lot of teachers and uh, school administrators unfortunately do feel this way that you know that uh, frustration is just frustration and it isn't a sign of uh, anything. But um, that's that's an interesting and very I think progressive way of looking at it. And you know one kind of related point there that you just made me think of. Um, I'll say this, knowing that you know, it, it might be a little bit of a controversial statement, mm-hmm. um, but I think it's true. And I think, and I think it's true in many cases, and it's potentially true for all of us, n- no matter what issue we're trying to deal with. But right now we're talking about how teachers, parents, whoever, might view what's happening with a kid. Um, but the same logic can apply to me or you or anybody else with some situation we're trying to deal with in life. Um, Quite often when people conclude that it's all, all the difficulties are born out of laziness, lack of motivation, lack of caring, um, or that the inconsistencies or the underperformance are a very active, deliberate choice that a kid is making. Um, Again, not only does that defy logic in terms of what really um, the kid would be wanting to do, um, because fundamentally a, a kid's brain wants to master it likes how it feels. It derives pleasure from mastering and accomplishing things and feeling competent. Um, and then when, you, when people like you and respect you and you're pleasing people in your life, well, that's good for a kid because that means that they continue to have latitude to do what they want. They continue to get privileges. They get rewarded. They get complimented. When you don't accomplish things, um, you have longer periods of time where people are bearing down on you and, and making you do more stuff, um, withholding privileges, giving you consequences, um, making your life a little bit more miserable. You're not getting what you want. And it just defies logic to suggest that a kid would on purpose put themselves in harm's way like that. Mm. Um, but you know, the other, I guess, controversial point would be when we conclude that those things are born out of laziness or lack of motivation, or a kid could do it if they wanted to, they just don't want to, they're making a choice. Um, 
those are kind of default conclusions that really indicate that um, we're frustrated, that we've reached the ends of our knowledge base, um, and we're frustrated with the fact that we've tried everything we know how to try, um, and it hasn't worked. And it's just kind of a default conclusion to go, well, you know, it's, it's tempting to think that we know everything and we have this experience, we have this knowledge base, and we should be able to, you know, it works with most kids. Why isn't it working with this kid? Well, since it most works with most kids and it's not working with this kid, it must be because this kid just doesn't care, doesn't want to. That's a possibility, but it's not usually the answer. Uh, usually the answer is there's something about this kid that we don't understand. Um, yeah, we've tried as hard as we can, but let's remember the kid's been trying as hard as they can with what they know, too. Mm-hmm. They're doing the best with what they've got, and there's information still missing. And kind of going back you know, to the, the way the scientific method works and I guess the, the thinking that I hear from a lot of engineers um, you know, in the field of engineering, especially you know, around here in the metro Detroit area, I work with a lot of automotive-based engineers, and there's this you know, thing that they do called listening to the machine when they are trying to fine-tune something or trying to troubleshoot a problem. Um, they, pay, they pay a lot of attention to how the machine is operating to try and pinpoint where in the operational system the glitch might be occurring. Um, and if they retool it, try a new design, fix a problem, and yet we're still getting glitches that says there's some variable we haven't pinned down yet. We haven't looked in the right place. We haven't looked at the right level of analysis. We haven't looked at the interactions amongst a, a few different things. Maybe it's not just one thing, but it's a, a sequence of events. But there's something we're missing. Uh, the information's there. We just haven't pinned it down yet. And it's the same school of thought that we take to helping um, understand how kids learn and perform um, and what's causing these difficulties that seem to keep happening no matter what we do. It's usually because we just haven't we haven't pinned down the right variable yet. Um, so I think it's, you know, to put it bluntly, just a little bit of a cop-out to say, well, the kid's just lazy and unmotivated. Um, it usually just means that we've reached the limits of our knowledge base, and we just need to either try a new approach or get some help from somebody who can broaden perspective a little bit. And I don't mean to offend anybody with that statement. Um, I think it's a very normal human tendency. We all do it. I do it sometimes. Um, it's just it's kind of hard to admit, but I think that's part of what's necessary in this whole process. Yeah, no, I I agree fully. I mean, uh, I know some people might be a little uh, weird about that uh, analysis with the mechanics and engineering of an um, automobile versus engineering and research and diagnosis of. Uh, the human mind, but I think there is a lot of similar points there that, you know, and like you said, I, I do agree also that it, it can be a cop-out that we just like, well, throw our hands up and say it's hopeless and walk away is easier, but unfortunately not the right choice. Right, right. Anyway, and, you know, it's, it's clear kids aren't machines. Mm-hmm. Um, they're more dynamic. There's a lot more moving parts, if you will, um, and there's a lot more noise in our data set. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to be possible for us to ever pin down every relevant variable involved in somebody's life because there's just too many dynamic factors in play. But uh, it still behooves us to try to get as close as we possibly can to you know, minimize the variance and at least pin things down as, as clearly as we can. Um, and on that point, the same method applies. So we just have to broaden the scope of our analysis a little bit. Right. 
Right. Well, let's go into some uh, specific uh, topic matters. Now, you offer a really different take on ADHD, um, your view being that ADHD is possibly very overdiagnosed and misunderstood, uh, and that sometimes some of the symptoms of ADHD could actually be symptoms of other disorders that are not being recognized. Can you talk about how you came to these uh, conclusions and some of the uh, concepts behind this? Sure. Um, some of it is, is born out of just advances in the field in terms of understanding more about just exactly what this thing that we call ADHD is. Um, and some of it is just born out of, again, that, that scientific perspective that I have to maintain um, as not only am I helping to accurately identify what's happening with a kid, but I'm also having to um, be aware of political forces um, that influence how people might be thinking about a set of issues at a certain point in time. So just to kind of clarify, um, yes, there I do believe that ADHD is quite often overdiagnosed. Um, it's tempting for people to jump to conclusion that if they see a kid having problem with attention and concentration, you know, being distractible, disorganized, rest, even restless and fidgety, um, that because those are some of the hallmark symptoms of ADHD, that that must be what's going on. Um, but there are multiple reasons why those symptoms might be occurring. Um, and so it's not necessarily ADHD just because we see those symptoms. Um, ultimately, what we have to do is understand what are the, the fundamental mechanisms that are driving those symptoms. Um, and that's where we have to do a real thorough um, investigation into the, not only what's happening now, but also the developmental history that brought us up to this point in time, um, looking at things from a school perspective as well as from a home and a community perspective, and then doing more specific um, testing of a kid's brain-based skills in terms of reasoning, problem-solving, working memory, executive functions, auditory processing, etc. Um, all those things that influence how efficiently um, they learn and how efficiently they're able to access and then use those skills in terms of academic performances. Um, so memory and learning processes and, and sensory motor skills also come into play that have to be assessed. Um, so yes, it's oftentimes overdiagnosed just because people look at the symptoms and go, well, gee, that's signs of ADHD, so that must be what it is, without realizing there's a myriad of things that might produce those same symptoms. Um, but to clarify, I also believe that ADHD, as well as learning disorders, um, are quite often missed or underdiagnosed um, just because of some of those long-standing um, views and assumptions that people make about why a kid might be doing what they're doing, you know, on purpose, lazy, motivation, et cetera, and so on. Um, so <clears throat> on both ends of the spectrum, I think there's errors made. Ultimately, once, you know, a, a, f a few glitches here and there is a normal part of the learning experience. But when we have those glitches happening more and more often as a kid gets older and advances through the increasingly complex educational curriculum and, and the performance demands, um, when we see the difficulties and the frustrations and all the emotional behavioral symptoms, um, just happening not only more often, but more severely, more pervasively, starting to morph into bigger problems, starting to um, influence social activities, not just academic activities. Um, all that says this is not just a temporary adjustment reaction. Uh, there's something more fundamental happening um, that gets back to that 
you know, lack of synchrony between the kid's particular profile of how they're supposed to be learning and performing versus how we're asking them to do it or, or how we're teaching them to do it. There, there's a mismatch there. And so with the ADHD thing, um, you know, I mentioned that part of you know, my perspective is born out of just advances in our, in our field of knowledge. Um, if you go back in time just a little bit, when this condition was first identified, you know, back in the, I think it was the 1960s at some point, it actually wasn't called ADHD at all. It was called minimal brain dysfunction. Um, and that was an, a neurology term basically referring to a neurological soft sign condition that means difficulties that are legitimately brain-based but that are not going to show up in any of the hard tests that were available at the time, such as EEGs, blood tests, urinalysis, um, or X-rays, and then going even further, getting into MRIs. Um, we just weren't going to see those we weren't going to see the source of those symptoms on those types of um, diagnostic procedures. Um, but we could identify the symptoms behaviorally, and we could identify them um, through doing functional analyses, looking at systematic patterns in the symptom occurrence, as well as um, specific cognitive testing, looking at profiles of strengths and weaknesses. We could see the, the implications there. Um, over time, the name changed because people thought it was a disorder of attention. Uh, the, the name originally was changed to attention deficit disorder, ADD, and that's where that phrase comes from. And <clears throat> that persisted um, all the way through the 1980s and up until 1994, at which time the condition was renamed ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and the term ADD was dropped entirely from the professional literature. Um, the reason for that change is because over time, through advances in diagnostic techniques as well as um, looking at variants in terms of how people responded to different types of treatment interventions, both behavioral and medical, um, it became obvious that this thing that we were calling attention deficit disorder really was not a disorder of attention. It had nothing to do with whether somebody could or could not pay attention. Um, in fact, people with ADD were able to pay attention and still are able to pay attention uh, under the right set of circumstances at certain times. But what the problem was, was, and still is, is that they can't reliably and fluently turn those attentional mechanisms on and off at will every single time, putting it where they need it for how long they need it to do what they have to do. Um, there's, there's a glitch in the mechanism that regulates the attentional, control, um, attentional capabilities. And so it became obvious that fundamentally the mechanism that was driving this condition that was called ADD was self-regulation or at a more basic brain level, um, cognitive control, which translates into cognitive filtering as well as impulse control. And that is the mechanism that underlies the ability to regulate one's thoughts, one's actions, one's emotional reactions, one's behavioral activity, as well as one's verbal reactions to things. It's self-regulation and cognitive control. Yeah, I think I, I recall hearing a, a doctor um, at one point uh, a while back describing ADHD as being, it's not so much, you know, the, like you said, it's no problem with an attention, it's uh, inability to filter out distractions. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, I mean, when you think about how our lives go, every single one of us, no matter what we're doing, um, our brains are being bombarded by stimuli almost constantly, sometimes more, sometimes less, sometimes more intensely, sometimes more subtly, but it's happening constantly. 
And in order to prioritize what we have to do and then initiate it, understand exactly what are the steps involved in doing it, keep ourselves on it, uh, and get it done, we have to not only resist incoming distractions or potential distractions, we have to um, we have to defer gratification, uh, i.e., we have to defer doing things that are much more enjoyable, that are new and different, that are interesting, that are shiny, that are just more pleasurable, um, either temporarily or at least do it only in breaks. Uh, we have to defer that at some level, uh, especially when what we're being asked to do, which is really more important because there's real-life implications or consequences attached to it. Um, whenever that's a little bit more dull, rote, monotonous, not so naturally enjoyable, um, whenever the rewards that might be attached to it are much more abstract or, or delayed, um, like we won't see the grade for several weeks to come yet, um, or we won't get the money for it for several weeks to come yet, uh, we have to use mental control to filter out distractions and to remind ourselves of why we're doing what we're doing. Um, because our brain naturally wants to do things that are enjoyable. It wants to seek out new stimulation. Uh, it wants to attend to new and different things, things that are more just obviously interesting or pleasurable. Um, and we have to just regulate um, sort of where our attention goes so that we can do things we have to do. Um, and so that mental control mechanism, absolutely. Um, self-regulation is really the fundamental piece that allows us to filter things out more effectively or not. So in truth, people with ADHD, it's not that they can't pay attention. It's that they're paying attention to too many things too much of the time, not systematically. It's more random. And so the going off task, the distractibility, it's not failures of attention. It's overactive attention. Um, and so that's why the name was changed from ADD to ADHD. And that H, you know, standing for hyperactivity, is a little bit misleading because when people hear the word hyperactivity, they think immediately of behavioral activity, bouncing off the walls, really up and out of the seat frequently, overly energetic, um, overly restless. And yes, those are some of the manifestations that can happen, especially in more severe cases. But what that's really referring to from a professional standpoint is overactivity or lack of systematic activity within the brain in terms of how well we're regulating our attention and all the other brain skills that we're trying to, to use, or how not, how, how not well we're regulating things. Um, so that's what that term hyperactivity means. And so these days, uh, whenever somebody says, you know, my kid has ADD, not ADHD, but ADD, um, they're really just using an old term um, as a sort of, I guess, informal shorthand referring to what's technically called um, ADHD predominantly inattentive presentation, which means okay, the symptoms that we're seeing are more of the inattentive type, being very easily distractible, trouble sustaining focus, trouble concentrating, trouble uh, making decisions, disorganization, procrastination, poor sense of time, etc. And we're not seeing as many of the obvious um, manifestations of impulse control problems, such as restlessness, overactivity, knee-jerk reactivity to things. Um, but it's it has to be understood that fundamentally what's driving those inattention symptoms still is weaknesses with impulse control and self-regulation. Um, the inattentive presentation usually just means that either it's a much milder version of the case to begin with or it's a, it's, it's a normal, 
more advanced developmental manifestation of the symptoms um, that happens as somebody gets older and the brain continues to mature, um, the mechanisms for being able to, to self-regulate do get better. It's not that there's no capacity for that. It's that their ability just to turn that skill on and off is, is weak. It just takes more deliberate mental effort and energy to do it, and it's more exhausting to do it. So they can do it, but they burn, they over-allocate resources to that, and they tax their system a lot more quickly uh, by doing so, um, which is what leads to a lot of the inconsistencies. But as kids get older, proceed into adolescence and young adulthood, um, it's quite common to see you know, kids that used to have more blatant hyperactivity symptoms just that starts to become more subtle over time as their brain matures and they do develop a little better capacity for self-regulation. You start to see less of the blatant hyperactive symptoms and more of the inattention symptoms, but impulse control is still underlying all that. So I guess the, the other point that's relevant to this view of ADHD, and you know, we've been alluding to the fact that you know, there's lots of reasons why somebody might have trouble with attention and concentration. With this ADHD thing, it's impulse control and self-regulation. Um, but other reasons why people might have trouble paying attention uh, include things like mental fatigue, born out of chronic sleep deprivation, um, mental fatigue born out of just working harder than really should be necessary to remember things or to recognize or recall words, to express our thoughts, to read, to spell, to write. Um, just so when kids have learning disorders, um, it's quite common at school when things are very structured, especially when the material is kind of simple in the early elementary school years, it's quite common for kids to be able to keep it together and with a lot more deliberate time and effort uh, be able to at least perform sufficiently um, to get by. But after doing that all day long, their brains are just spent. And as the day progresses, it's not uncommon as they and kind of glitches to see that whereas earlier in the day they might have been able to marshal up enough mental resources to kind of stay on point and figure something out again, towards the latter part of the day, um, their ability to do that is just compromised. And so there's more, they're more prone to being distractible, going off task, getting frustrated, shutting down, not finishing things, um, things that look like defiance or, or you know, just lack of interest, but are really just born out of frustration. Um, but again, there's, there's attention symptoms involved there. Um, other conditions that can disrupt attention include anxiety, depression, epilepsy, asthma, diabetes. I mean, the list can go on and on and on. So that kind of leads to two very basic points. Um, one, you know, those of us in the field that work with ADHD and similar things have a, have a saying that says basically everybody with ADHD has problems with attention and concentration but not everybody that has problems with attention and concentration has ADHD. And that leads to point number two, which is context is everything. Um, so the context within which the symptoms are occurring and then the more systematic patterns of occurrence related to systematic patterns of brain skills, strengths and weaknesses in terms of learning and performance profiles. That's and looking at what the kid was born with, how this has developed over time, how the symptom picture has changed over time, educational experiences, tutoring experiences, other interventions that have been tried, et cetera. All that provides the context for understanding, understanding more about why we're seeing the particular symptoms we're seeing now and what those symptoms mean. Um, and all that basically goes back to 
if you really want to understand what the symptoms mean, i.e., what's going on, what's driving the train, what to do about it to be more effective, it really underscores the need for a very thorough assessment uh, of the symptoms by a competent, very appropriately trained and credentialed professional. Um, it's, it's really not appropriate to just look at a list of symptoms and go, well, gee, because it looks like ADHD, it must be ADHD, and then use a trial of medication as a diagnostic tool. Well, if the kid responds, well, that must be, mean that they have ADHD, we must have been right, because that's a misnomer. Um, that's not necessarily how it works. And that's, that's usually the approach that leads to a lot of the uh, negative experiences that people have with medication management for ADHD. What that usually means is um, either A, it wasn't ADHD in the first place, and or B, they're treating the wrong thing. Um, it's not usually because the medications are evil. Um, I know some people believe that, but when you have thoroughly identified what the problem is and are, and are convinced that it really is ADHD, just because the data has, has indicated that very clearly, um, the medications generally are pretty effective. Um, not always, but usually. But it all just says, let's first figure out what we're dealing with, and then we can decide what's going to be more effective for it. Right, and, uh, you know, it's... Uh... It's interesting that you talk about, you know, ADHD, some people, and the, the hyperactivity issue is the one that uh, I think is the hardest one because a lot of people associate that with simply uh, too much sugar in the diet, too much television, bad parenting, uh, and, of course, none of that actually is involved at all. Right. It's, there's absolutely no – I mean, those, those issues have been studied very systematically – and there is no credible scientific evidence suggesting that any of those symptoms are related to sugar, too much TV, too much exposure to electronics, or any of those kind of things. Um, I mean, this condition is not new. Uh, we've identified it within the past, what, 30, 40, 50 years. Um, but it's existed for longer than that. We just didn't know what it was. Just like by the same token, I don't know, two, three, four hundred years ago, um, epilepsy existed too. We just didn't know what it was. You know, we, we used to think people were demonically possessed or whatever that whatever our explanation was at the time. Uh, but over time, our knowledge base improved, our ability to systematically pin things down through evaluation procedures improved, and therefore we've been able to make more sense of things that used to be more mysterious. And, you know, that kind of leads to another point. Um, we've talked a lot so far about presenting symptoms, signs of stress and frustration, anxiety, depression, moodiness, behavioral kinds of acting out. Um, I'm a firm believer that a lot of things that we are calling primarily emotional and behavioral disturbances or psychiatric disorders, um, at some point in time in our future, as our knowledge base continues to advance, I think many of those things are going to be more accurately understood as the chronic stress reactions that they are, born out of brain-based glitches that disrupt our efforts to learn and, and or perform on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's just all a matter of just pinning down exactly where those strengths and weaknesses are and where the mismatch is between what we're trying to do and what really needs to be done to use our skills more effectively. Yeah, I think, um, I think you know, we uh, want to get on that a little bit more anyway because anxiety and depression are a couple of things you talk about the most as being major problems for 
kids who uh, are uh, having trouble and difficulties in school. And unfortunately, sometimes both anxiety and depression can be dismissed as being irrelevant or just a symptom rather than an actual cause. Um, can you explain some some of how that works and uh, the the importance of trying to understand what's going on? Sure. Um, I think, you know, one point that deserves some clarification, a lot of people talk about anxiety and depression as if they are completely separate phenomena. And yeah, certainly we do have different diagnostic labels for different manifestations of the symptoms, and there are certain differences in the types of mood disorders that somebody might be born with in terms of um, biochemical imbalances and how their brain and their temperament are hardwired to, to process and regulate emotions. I mean, there, there's, there are some legitimate genetically-based emotional conditions, like bipolar disorder, for sure. Um, but I guess speaking more generally, um, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that anxiety and depression, are they go hand-in-hand. Hand. They, they almost never occur in isolation. They're almost always co-occurring at some level. Um, it will vary from one person to another, one set of circumstances and one set of issues to another, but they, they still co-occur. Um, so, for example, with, with kids, um, a lot of times signs of depression and signs of anxiety um, can be, number one, they present differently oftentimes in kids than they do in adults. And number two, um, because a lot of our understanding of anxiety and depression is based on adult presentations, um, sometimes the different presentations in kids can be missed or, or misunderstood and thus mismanaged. Um, so, for example, depression in kids, yes, sometimes manifests as the kid being um, moody, sad, sullen, withdrawn, just seeming down, negative, pessimistic. Um, but sometimes it manifests as irritability and anger and just hair-trigger frustration reactions, um, emotional outbursts, um, argumentativeness, stubborn, strong-willed demeanor, argumentative, um, being non-compliant, things that start to make people think about um, opposite defiant disorder or that might look as if the kid is, again, lazy, unmotivated, doing things on purpose just to get out of things um, or signs of some more serious emotional disturbance. Um, likewise, anxiety. You know, yes, sometimes in kids, anxiety does manifest as specific phobias, fears of specific things, fears of insects, bugs, needles, the dark, separation. Um, but sometimes it manifests as irritability, tension, stomach aches, headaches, um, and even like intense emotional outbursts that can look like anger, but really are manifestations of sort of mild, what nerds like me would call subclinical panic reactions, um, just hair-trigger responses to stress and frustration. Um, but that then leads to, depending on how people respond to it, um, either the kid melting down completely and becoming so dysregulated they can't think clearly until they have a chance to calm down and, and get their wits together, um, or um, sometimes becoming more defiant, acting out, refusing to do things, argumentative. Um, and again, people sometimes will, will look at the end result of the stress reaction, which probably began long before the symptoms that we're seeing and reacting to in much more subtle fashions, much more 
moderated fashions um, and just morphed over the span of several minutes or even several hours in some cases or even several days into this I can't take it anymore kind of reaction to frustration, some little overreaction to something seemingly small, but it's just the latest in a series of examples of difficulties the kid's been struggling with. But people will tend to see it as being, again, purposeful, purposefully avoidant, laziness, unmotivated, et cetera, and so on, and then mismanagement, mismanage the situation accordingly. Um, what's, I mean, it kind of goes back to, number one, let's make sure that we realize that there's different ways that these things can manifest in kids and let's then adults. And number two, let's also go back to a very fundamental point that we talked about earlier, which is um, before we jump to the conclusion that these are signs of a more serious emotional disturbance, recognizing that, sure, they might be, but more often than not, they're not. More often than not, they are signs of chronic stress and frustration born out of ongoing, recurrent performance glitches, um, difficulties born out of those brain-based glitches that disrupt our abilities to apply our learning and performance skills as consistently and fluently as we need to, need to do to get results, to meet those normal needs for success, mastery, competence, etc. Um, let's first consider the possibility that these are, these are chronic stress reactions. Um, you know, so one of the axioms in the field is, before we jump to exotic conclusions, Let's start with the simplest conclusions, um, and let's look logically at the interactions between the symptoms, the situation, what the kid's being asked to do, and let's look for systematic patterns wherein these symptoms either do or do not occur. Um, that's going to tell us a lot about what might be triggering the symptoms and what these things might mean. Going back to that, that phrase, context is everything, let's first understand more about the context. If we just react to the symptoms without knowing anything about context, we have no idea what we're reacting to. And our, just by luck, we might be right, but not usually. We're usually going to end up just missing the point, and the symptoms are, they might respond briefly to some brief structure or brief calming down type of intervention. Um, but they'll, they'll resurface um, as the source of the difficulties continues to be there. Um, and, you know, I guess the other thing that's worth mentioning here is that, you know, kind of going back to the point I made earlier that when I see a kid that's acting out and getting frustrated, I don't, I don't want to see anybody frustrated, certainly not that chronically. Um, at the same time, there's a part of me that's kind of relieved to see that because it means, yes, the kid does care. Yes, they still do have an emotional pulse. Um, we just need to understand what's driving the frustration. So stress and anxiety... Um, you know, kind of get a bad rap in terms of how people think about it. Um, there's this, almost this assumption that a lot of people have that um, any stress is bad, and the goal in life is to um, not have any stress at all. And one of the points I try to get across to people is we're, once we've figured out what's going on and now we're in the intervention process of dealing with whatever the issues are, is that the goal of intervention is never going to be to not ever have stress in our life. Um, that's just not possible. Um, stress is what motivates change. It's what motivates us to grow, to improve, to expand our knowledge base, to develop new skills. It's what, I mean, you know, that old saying, necessity is the mother of invention. Well, what that's basically saying is that a need, a very specific need that's not being met, or stress that's happening because of a need that's not being met, that's what motivates change and innovation. Um, it's necessary for growth and learning. 
So stress is not all bad. It's, it's actually a very useful sign to us that we're missing something, something needs to change, or we just take some kind of action. And we take a look at you know, where anxiety comes from in the first place. Um, it, it's basically our brains signaling us that there is something that's happening that either is potentially harmful to us or dangerous to us or potentially overwhelming to us um, or something that it requires us to either take action to avoid or take action to deal with. Um, and when we have I mean, an anxiety disorder is where that normal reaction to stress um, that is supposed to motivate useful, productive change and coping um, is just on overdrive. And we just have this overreactive stress response that's just chronically unrelenting and overgeneralizing things and reacting to too many things too severely. Um, so that's what drives an anxiety disorder. But at its root, anxiety is a normal part of the human condition. Um, when we don't have any anxiety about anything, um, that's actually a concern to me. Because that says, man, we're not attending to even the right things. Um, or we're deriving pleasure from things that are actually potentially harmful. And that's, I mean, that's getting into a whole different topic, but that starts to get into you know, the root of sociopathy. Um, so stress all by itself, not a bad thing. The goal is to recognize very systematically what are the things that are likely to, to cause that reaction and then develop strategies for either how we're going to prevent that or when we can't prevent it, because we can't prevent everything, how we're going to deal with it when it does happen. Um, just expect it will happen and have a plan for how you're going to deal with it and know that you can. That's, that's what drives competence. And this is where we have to finish with part one of my interview with Dr. McCaskill. Now, coming up in episode 42, Dr. McCaskill talks about dyslexia and the related disorders of dysgraphia, which is difficulties in handwriting, and dyscalculia, which is difficulties in mathematics. He also talks about finding the right kinds of special education support in school and making sure that parents are offering the right kinds of support for the kids at home. You definitely don't want to miss it. And of course, please be sure to share this episode of Special Parents Confidential with everyone you know. We have social media sharing buttons on our website that make it easy to do it. Just visit SpecialParentsConfidential.com. You'll also find a link to Dr. McCaskill's family service practice in the Detroit area on the website page. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.